Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. That's our theme. Night yes, after night, Whoa, week there. after week, month after month, year after year. I want this death rate to stop. They're not and listening. They're not they're not That's listening. It. Actually, uh, Chuck Mosley died the other night, and I just talked to him like a couple months ago. He was in some court trouble, and I was trying to help him get out of it. Um, the original singer of Faith No More, uh, right. who they ended up kicking out because of drugs, and got the whatever his name, the Mister Bungle guy. Was wait, he was the guy that sang "We Care a Lot"? We care right? a lot, right? Chuck, he's an old friend of Mike and I's, and. Just get another text message. Another dude I know that's been shooting dope for 30 years is dead. That's fucking crazy. And he was, what, 57 or something? Yeah, he was my age, probably 56, 50-something. And and so I'm sure you're hearing it in Huntington Beach. So there's two categories now that I've identified that are dying. Millennials with the fentanyl and then old junkies. Like, Like, you know... I guess old junkies died. I just never paid attention. Top Jimmy died. Um, you know, different Darby Crash killed himself. Like there's a lot of catastrophe with junkiedom. Mm-hmm. But when Drama. you figure, once you get to be about forty, you're just gonna settle in, aren't you? If you survive to forty, you should. You know, I, I have Mike Starr is an old friend of mine, the bass player right. from Alice in Chains that tragically died of drugs. His dad, John, he, Mike, and I and John used to shoot dope together. This is like 25 years ago. John's still alive. He's got to be like 70. You know what I mean? So I never expected my old junkie friends that just haven't gotten sober or whatever, that they figured out a way, like those old dope fiends in East LA, like live with right. their mom. And, you see those whole like yeah. 60, 70-year-old dudes like cruising around, you know they're a junkie. They're on bikes. <laughs> they're all skinny and yeah i just figure my brothers and sisters that have not caught onto the sober train are gonna you know live like that and then now the last two or three years they're dying too crazy yeah is, do you think that's a lifetime of of abuse or do you no, think, I it's think that it's the dope, dope. Is bad? i think the dope is too strong you know i actually had a, i had a, a client tell me today that it's because I, I we were talking and i said you know you're gonna go out there and you're gonna shoot dope that's a risk. None of you, none of you know what you're shooting and you're willing to put it in your veins directly to your heart. And he goes, it's safer than driving a car. But that's what they're... No, it's not, but it's not. But think about what your mom said to you 30 years ago. She said the same thing. I, I like facts. The facts are that you can produce... I, 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 the, guy sent it, the guy sent me the how to make fentanyl, like some you know, some sarcastic guy that knows I'm against this fentanyl thing. Mm-hmm. And so and so Drew and I, Dr. Drew and I looked at it. It's You can produce a massive amount of fentanyl for $3,000 in materials you can get sent by, you know, by UPS to your house. From so, China or from here? From Well, there's, you never know where the companies are. They're online. You order mm-hmm. this. I mean, I, I saved it. You know, part of me, part of me stuff? wanted to make a are little. You playing on, are you playing on the dark web? <laughs> no, somebody from the dark web came up out of the darkness to play a joke on me and sent me the how to make fentanyl for three thousand dollars. You can make like, you know, three hundred, you know, ungodly amounts of fentanyl. Uh, this is better than Amway or Herbalife. So they're mixing it with the dope, 
which that that ingredient, that thing fentanyl that strengthens dope or can be mistaken for dope if you mix it with coffee and whatever else they're cutting things with, that that drug, man-made chemical, man-made compound combination is what's causing the death. I'm convinced of it. That's the that's the outlier that didn't exist for decades that you can get this strong, 100 times stronger than heroin drug. Make it yourself. Put it in your weak-ass dope or not even dope at all. Right. No, I told you my buddy was telling me they were cooking it with um, with Coca-Cola. They were reducing Coca-Cola down to syrup. Well, yeah, that, I'm trying to find and- where this guy sent me the ingredients that you need. And, and he it, basically, it's a dark web thing of how to make it. And, um, and I was shocked because it, because if you, if you, if I didn't have OCD, I could, uh, focus long enough to re- like, if I was high on drugs, I could figure out how to make this stuff. Well, and I but probably now, would now sober. Yeah. I can't, I can't, fo- I can't focus that long. <laughs> like it's, it's like four pages of all these different ingredients and what they're made of and how to do it and how to cook it and how to process this ingredient out of that ingredient and all these you know long clinical names for the uh for the drug anyway so it's i'm surprised fentanyl. i'm surprised big pharmacy doesn't get that off the internet because that's their competition no they they're the ones that created it <laughs> no but no they're on to they're bigger gonna put and them out things. of business they're on to bigger and better things the uh head of eli Merck uh, uh or lily lily i think just got made uh, social services director by Trump today. All right. Head of it's a, a box on for a, everyone. It's a box on for everybody. So anyways, what I really wanted to focus on is there's a lot of people that two different populations that reach out to me the most. Parents of heroin addict kids, right? And, and when I say kids, I'm not talking about 12. I'm talking about <laughs> 26. Right. So, so parents of drug addict kids and what to do, what to do. and like adult acquaintances, friends of mine, for, you know, used to hang out with you at Safari Sam's type people that think I have access to like free Malibu rehab for them, mm-hmm. right? Well, you and don't. So, so, but, but they want you to give them a heads up or a direction, right? Uh-huh. So two people have done it in the last 24 hours. So the problem is I don't believe that sort of treatment is good for gutter hypes like people that have been trying to get sober for 20 years cry help american hospital um used to be stanton recovery but i know i guess now it's for profit or something stanton detox and yeah. the rock center i don't i don't know what's up with them but, but yeah. there's just a there's a plethora of there's a bunch of rehab fellowship is still there people Those could go to and anytime I go the extra mile and I'm calling them and I'm talking to them and I'm getting them in and getting them into American hospital. I just did it for a friend of mine a couple months ago. Get, I got somebody into cry help on County scholarship beds. Right. And it takes days. And, and not only do you have to keep calling the facility and pulling favors and trying to get, you know, the lowdown on, on how to get in as quick as you can, you've got the drug addict disappearing for a day or oh i didn't see your text or yep. i lost my phone no when and you then- get a call they're not available that's for sure when you got that you've got an hour to bring them down yeah, here they're yeah. not there that's what i wanted to get to so then you the the getting them there is 
a nightmare. And eventually, if you do get them there, them staying there is a nightmare, <laughs> right? <Yes>. So, <laughs> so, so I had this guy the other day, and like I don't know, it was like a week. It was the beginning of November, like in the middle of October, and and I said so. So I just got a guy in to cry help, and I want to, you know, I've been, I'm up to speed on it. I know how to do it, so let's do it. And he goes, "Dude, I don't want to go to cry help." Yep. <laughs> now that's more honest than the other two guys that I helped get an American Hospital and cry help, and then they just left after ten days or eight yeah. days, right? This dude's like, "I want to do that. no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to go to." That, Malibu. That's that's some bullshit. We, we I dealt with that not too long ago over at the other place where I work at New Beginning. This this woman. Oh, my husband's dying. He drinks this. He does that. He does that. He's abusive. He does all these things. It's horrible. You really need to help him. Well, Charlie Street. Oh, I'm not taking him there. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Which is it? Is it is it a fatal? Is it life and death? Are you tired of being beat up? Are you tired of him going to jail? Are you tired of all this nonsense? But you're not going to take him there. So that's that's what I'm talking about. So why I share this with audiences and families and people? I go through the same thing you're going through. We every every drug addict's pretty much predictable, right? It's pretty. They want to stop, but they don't want to stop. And that gravitational pull back and forth between those two you know, kind of extremes are what families are dealing with. It's what spouses are dealing with. It's what the addicts themselves are living with. And then it, it's all of us. We're all just trying to hit the right spot where you do what you can, where you are with what you've got, and you try to help, and you don't have high expectations it's going to work, right? Lower your expectations and just keep trying. And... Once in a while, American Hospital works. I had a friend of mine get sober at American Hospital. American Hospital, for those that don't know, is like a hundred beds. It's like a it's like an ungodly amount of beds, isn't it? In Pomona. I've never been there. Yeah, it's right off the seventy one freeway. I was there three times. <laughs> yeah, see that's my that's my Charlie Street, my Cooper Fellowship, and my Rock Center. Those are mine. Yeah, the Rock Center's Christian, isn't it? Um no. I always heard that it was, so I never went there. Of I, went course. To, <laughs> I mean, that's all all I have to hear is gossip or hearsay that places Christian. No. I'm like, well, I couldn't go there. No, you know, it was, you know it was a 90 day low bottom indigent social model. That sounds like me in 1994. And, that, I, and I loved the place. And, and I was there for 90 days. Same with, with Cooper. I was there for seven months, not six, because they lost track of me. 1994. So. So what I wanted to do, I wrote this blog about what parents, like, so the, of the two categories of people, we'll get to our gutter ju hype friend junkies in another episode. But tonight <laughs> I wanted to focus on what parents should be doing, how they should be interacting with their kid that's a junkie, and if they are able or have insurance or means to get the person help, what, quest what are they looking for? What questions should they be asking a rehab center? Good point. Because, you know, most rehab centers are corrupt on a good day. Like, that's on a day when when the state is there. <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah, I used to take offense to that, when you but you said most. And, and most, yeah, man, it most, sucks to be involved in something that really has gotten a black eye and it deserves it. Yeah, so, so I just came up with some ideas, and that's not foolproof, but 
the first thing you should ask that that's not in the blog because it's assuming that you've already spoken to the rehab but the first thing you should ask if you call a number if you google something and it pops up a number and it looks like you know rehab.com or whatever if as soon as somebody answers the phone you should say are you a brick and mortar rehab center or are you a referral center right because most of what those phone calls on the internet they're not even rehabs they're just Right. body brokers patient generated uh call centers referral services referral right. services right. is a nice way of putting it yeah <laughs> right so so and they can sound totally legit like drug you know uh antidrugorg.com or something to make you mistake them for a government agency or something it's all disguise but they can't lie to you so you have to say, are you a brick and mortar, meaning are you a physical rehab center that I'm speaking to right now, or am I speaking to a referral center? And they have to answer you that question, yes or no, which what they are, right? And if they're a call center or a referral source, hang up the phone and start researching because the referral sources are only going to refer you where they have contracts. And by contracts, I mean where they get kickbacks, right? Right. Well, they get they get paid for every person that they get a verification of benefits on and send them their way. So yeah, that's how they make their money. Yeah. So so let's just steer clear of that. And and but once you talk to a facility, these are the questions asked. Okay. Or you can look it up on their website. Right. How long have they been in existence? And I give this cutoff date. I remember. You know, I've had lots of different rehab jobs and rehab centers and whatever right so let's just list them i worked at map i worked at prc i worked at cry help i worked at los encinas i worked at um american uh, southern california addiction centers i worked at laguna detox i worked at aloe i worked at acadia i worked at um promises outpatient i worked at you know i worked at a lot of places i had my own place hollywood recovery center that's I, that's 10 right there. Yeah, so I've been around it, right? And most up until 2013, everybody that worked in the recovery industry, though there were some sleazy guys and gals. Always. Yeah. But for the most part, people who worked in it were sober people who cared about helping and certainly wanted to have a career and make money and all that, but that was not the primary. The primary motivation was this is a great job to have. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, like, I don't make much money, but I don't think many people have as much fun as I do at work, right? When it's good, it's amazing. Yep. Well, it was good until the money came in and polluted it. That's my take. So 2013 is the first time I really recognized, oh, my God, in insurance is paying for treatment. You know, yep, we, we had this little six-bed rehab, me and Evan and Jared at Aloe. Six-bed rehab. I, I and this woman, Susie, ran all the groups. A student intern helped me and her case manage, right? And Evan did marketing and intake, and Jared did plan operations, keep the lights on, get the food and all that, right? We had like eight employees. And those guys, Evan and Jared said, I think we can, if we just get the documentation right, we can bill insurance. And I was like, that's a headache, and they never pay, and it's all bullshit. Don't believe it. So, but we started doing it because it wasn't, because I do things. As, so it was as, private pay up until that point? Yeah, but cheap, like 10 grand, 15 grand to be in Malibu, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, but most people don't have that. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. One time there was this dad who wanted <laughs> me to deal with his son, and he was sitting in my kitchen, and you know, and I was saying, okay, I'll do everything. He can move in here and live in my sober living where I lived. He can live here and and you know, and I'll I'll just manage him and we'll try to figure it out, right? And the dad had his checkbook and he was on my kitchen table writing a check. And he said, so how much is it for 30 days living with me in a sober living with me counseling the kid every day, right? How much is it? And I said, $4,000. And he wrote four zero comma zero. And I said, no, 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 4,000. And he goes, oh, I thought 40,000. He was willing to pay it. He was willing to pay it, right? So, and he had so, it, apparently. So, you know, most, I would say 50% of the junkies got no money. 30, 40% have good insurance. I think that's the number. 40% of people are well insured in, in addiction to mental health, right? So 50% ain't got shit. 40% have good insurance that they can go to anywhere. Hazelden, anywhere. Betty Ford Center, anywhere. 10% got cash, right? And I was That'd be about right. I was mostly about it about that uh, about cash cuz I hated insurance companies and I like doing things my way and the way I think it should be done and as soon as you start getting involved in insurance they start telling you what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's a fine line to walk. So so anyways, so <laughs> so we it wasn't cuz cuz Susie who was the psychologist or the CMFT, she she worked in treatment for decades too, and we both knew how to document and whatever. So, so we were pretty much up to speed anyway. So we just got a little more formal. We talked to some person that did insurance billing. We made our documentation fit that, and you know, and then and then Jared mostly started doing this thing of filling in for insurance and sending it in. Right, this is in like 2012, I think. In, or 2013, beginning of 2013. Wow, it's changed and a in check, five years. <laughs> and a check came. I remember we were, but he came in. He goes, "I told you," and it was a check for like thirty-four thousand dollars. And I was like, "That's fucking crazy. That never happened." For a month. Yeah, for a month. Hmm, for one client. That's a lot. Yeah. But but understand, I'd worked at all these treatment centers. None of them got compensated by insurance ever you'd get like checks for like $1,100. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I had always lived in a world where insurance was bullshit. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, oh my God, that's going to change everything. You know what I mean? And I watched it. So 2013 in my mind, just because of my experiences, if a rehab center didn't exist prior to 2013, you probably can't trust them. You just in your heart of hearts can't know whether they got involved in treatment for altruistic reasons to help to make a living to have a real estate investment all the things that were traditional to rehabs Mm -hmm. in southern california that you can't trust that they weren't motivated for that those insurance checks you just can't because hundreds of thousands of dollars started rolling in in 2013 to six and 12 bed rehab centers insurance money so anybody that started in 2014, 2015, you can bet maybe, I'm not saying absolutely, but maybe they right. got involved to get access to all that insurance cash. Well, especially if they're not if they're not afflicted, you know, if they're not one of us, 
and they just happened into the business. That's another way of looking at it. If, why would you want to be around drug addicts? They lie and they're smelly. Well, because, and they, because of the money. Yeah. But you know, if you got sober in 2015 and then you wanted to start a business because you had a business model, that, that's probably your only well, exception. See, see the, because of the evilness of the recovery industry, I'm sorry, some good guys are going to get punished by my rule. Mm-hmm. But when I'm advising people, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just saying, this is what I know. The money started rolling in in the beginning of 2013. And by 2014, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in that mailbox every couple days. Mm-hmm. So I can't trust anyone who got into the business after 2014 in a general way. Okay. Right? Yeah. So that's one rule that I have. How long has the facility been in operation? Right. And 2013 is my cutoff year. Right. Doesn't mean a a 2015 facility isn't good, but I just don't trust it. And it takes too long. You can't figure things out. Right. You can't figure out whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Right. So, how long has the facility been in operation? And here it says 2014, just to be safe, because that's when the big money started rolling in like ungodly amounts of money. Yeah. You know, I know yeah, some no, no, no. treatment centers that gross $1.4 million a month. I, I watched them blow up. I mean, let's name names. Solid Landings blew up. I was actually working, I was working there during the blow up. You know what? They're yeah. back. Are they back? I, I saw someone came in and said, hey, because we know people that are in treatment now that work there that are telling me, hey, Solid Landings is, is You know what's another sad byproduct of all this? All the good, struggling fucking straight up rehabs like the one in costa mesa um what was it called there for years uh the person's name what was the name oh, of that? pat uh, moore pat moore foundation yeah they started chasing the insurance dollars and they lost because they didn't know how to optimize the internet i, I they miss didn't i know. miss that place. they that didn't place know was but great... that was a fuck up on their part the management of pat moore fucked up they thought they're going to outsmart these American addiction centers people. Are you fucking kidding me? Those people are greedy fucks. No, if they if they'd have stayed true, to they should have stayed, stayed course, true, yeah. and they'd still be in business. And I'd use them as a Claire Foundation. Claire Foundation <laughs> just did the same thing, and they're now backing out of it because Good. because these people that came into the industry, all they really are is insurance billing machines. And, and, and patient acquisition machines, they're not rehabs. The rehab is an afterthought to the patient acquisition, the pre-screening, whatever it's called that you the said The VOB, the verification Yeah, verification of, yeah. of benefits and how to bill while they're sitting in your house. That's, that's, so all of a sudden, Pat Moore Foundation is going to compete on that level with those greedy motherfuckers, yeah. and Claire Foundation is going to do it, and Friendly House is going to do it. I, I, that bothered me to no end that the great decades long, good nonprofits of our, of Southern California that I admire so much my whole life just went after insurance money and lost, you know what I mean? And now they're out of business or they're going back to being a nonprofit or whatever and begging for money, but don't come begging for money from me. That's the truth. I'd give money to all these organizations because I believed in what they were doing. And they, it, somehow that gold rush of 2014, uh, everybody thought they could get rich, right? Mm-hmm. And that, well, that Pat Moore was, was a huge one down there. I know they had two on Newport Boulevard, and I used to use the place. And I liked it because it was. It had that 
it had that low bottom indigent feel. It was a great place to put people on behaviorals, you know, a 72 hour behavioral. And it was a good place to drop off people when they just want to get somewhere. Well, okay, here we go. Newport Boulevard. Yeah. So, so anyway, so that's basically to inform the public about what happened in the industry and how, why it changed. It changed chase to chase insurance dollars, right? It became a, an industry saturated with people who are non-addicts, owner-operators, doctors, owner-operators, trying to get at the insurance money. And it really did a lot of damage, right? And it started to damage the reputation of rehab. Second, question, second thing is, how many licensed professionals are full, full-time employees at your facility? Because a website is misleading. It'll show a million faces of people, LCSW and MFT and a KDAC 2 and a KDAC 2 and an LCSW and a PsyD and, and an intern. And you just yep. roll down and it's just like, God, this place has got so many employees. None of those people are employees. Understand that. That's a lie. That is just a marketing gimmick. That's every motherfucker that puts patients in there or does a group once in a while or is associated with the, the owner or, you know, is supportive of the rehab center. And no. they are not full-time employees. They do not work there. They come on Tuesdays and run a group, right? And their picture's on the website, LCSW, right? Or MFT, MFT, MFT and training. MFTIs, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so if you ask how many full-time licensed full-time employees do you have? Not not that are on your website, not that come by there once a week, not that refer clients there, not that are friends of the owner that are on the website. How many full-time employees are licensed professionals? This is a real telling fact of a rehab center to me. Right? Hmm. How many certified counselors are there? Right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of people walking around saying they're counselors, they ain't shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. They're, they're glorified techs running groups that a student is documenting so they can bill insurance. Do you understand? Yeah. You've been a part of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was I was that student. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a bummer? Uh-huh. So for you, those of you at home, like the industry has always, because there was no not much profit in the recovery industry. They made me a hooker and I didn't always, even know it. It was always, it was always students who were a big part of the workforce, right? Right. So we're well, in KDAX in training, counselors in training. I like interns. I like yeah, having intern. an intern around. And, and so that was a big part of the workforce when they started to kind of try to cut to the most bare bones expenses to optimize profit, they started having non-counselors, non-KDAC counselors running groups because you're, you're sober for eight years and you're, you're funny and you, you <laughs> kind of talk AA and all that kind of stuff. So sophisticated techs, you know, glorified techs running groups as if they're, certified counselors or licensed psychologists or licensed MFTs or social workers. They're just techs, right? And they're running groups that they have, that the insurance company would not compensate the documentation of a tech for a recovery education group. But if a PsyD 
documents that group and then gets it signed off by their supervisor, that group is now was truly run by the psychiatrist, the psychologist or the MFT, licensed MFT, who wasn't even in the building when the group went on. Well, that's dirty. That's what they all do, hmm. right? Except for places that are really in it for the long haul and want to do good work and want to have good outcomes and want to have, want to have a professional environment and you know, know that you're going to make some money, but you're not going to make 25% net, right? And so, so how many licensed professionals work there? And then, you know, you can do this on the phone or you can do it on the website if you really are tech savvy and search their website. But if a facility says they specialize in everything, they probably shitty at everything. <laughs> that's, my, that's my take on it. So if they say we have a, we're, we specialize in sex addiction and eating disorders and gambling and and uh, dual diagnosis and and heroin addiction and prescription drug addiction and and bipolar disorder and borderline personality and i i'm i'm not exaggerating go on the malibu rehabs website no way and they all say they specialize in all those things that's ridiculous ridiculous i guess it looks good if you don't have any idea I guess that's what the point you're making. I'm trying to educate the public because, on what, I mean, how to navigate it. I would think that's ridiculous. That's like saying someone's a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter, and a doctor. <laughs> well, Frenchy is. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the, the fucking heroin dealer. <laughs> he just fixed my bathroom. I'm so grateful to Frenchy. He was here. He was here fucking in misery for two days, but it's all fixed. But um, but so. So, so you can't specialize in everything. When you look at the, say, the Meadows Rehab Center website, they specialize in everything. They literally specialize in everything. They're the best at everything. Wow. How can you be the best at everything? I'm not even the best at heroin counseling. That just reminded me of the, the John Lennon quote when they asked him if, if Ringo was the best drummer in rock and roll, and he said, oh, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> Paul McCartney <laughs> is. <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, Ringo's not, I mean, that's me. People go, are you, are, so you're the best at what you do? I'm not, I'm not even the best at my work. <laughs> you know, I, I, in my I'm, building. I'm very self-critical. I, in about, I can tell you, in 2005, 2006, 2007, there wasn't, there wasn't somebody that was, more attuned to patient population, more on it, more dedicated than me. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> you cannot sustain that shit. No. You, you cannot. I have treated, I went through it, because a weird thing happened at Las Encinas in, like, I don't know, about midway through, I worked there nine years. And about midway through, I started, something came up about patient uh, numbers, like, um, like, because we started to get so much repeat business, right? So traditionally, people went through and they'd be gone for a year or so. And then as the 2000s wore on, you would have this recidivism so quickly. Like, in three weeks, they'd be back. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, unheard of, really. And so the question at management was, do we issue a new... Because we had these credit cards that were the people that you had to stamp all the documentation with, Right. Do we issue a new patient identification number or can we use their old one? Save the plastic. 
And so then I, you know, because I was the director of it, I, I had to sit in these meetings about, you know, in a hospital, if you're going to change something like that, you have to mandatory minimum three meetings with all department heads to discuss this, huh. this whether we're going to keep, keep, uh, re, keep giving new patient identification numbers or not. So then it came up that patient identification numbers, what, what they mean, because I never even paid attention, right? And it rolls, it, so, so the patient identification number would be like uh, a numeral, the number sign 11316, uh, right? So, so that, and what that meant was it was the 11th year they'd had this in operation and that patient was number 316 of that year in that unit. So we had five units. We had dual diagnosis. We had primary chemical dependency. We had major depression unit, adolescent psych, and had five units. I forget what. Oh, the you guys specialized one was. in everything. No, we were a psychiatric <laughs> hospital. Yeah. No. Psychiatric hospitals specialize in psychiatric illness. Yeah. So, so. Uh -huh. Then I, I started just going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I, started, and I went back to the year before, the 2010. We had, we had admitted into the chemical dependency unit at Los Angeles Hospital 485 patients in one year. That's a lot. That's 30 a month. That's 40 a month, mm -hmm. right? No, it is. So yeah. I did, and, I, and, and there were two other counselors, so I did one-third of those admins. So I did 15 admits a month, caseload of 10 or 12, constantly for nine years. Do you know how many drug addicts that is? That's madness. You cannot sustain your interest, your passion for that. You have to find something new and different. And education was my thing. I loved, you know, the whole, like, trying to inform the public about things, right? And that, that's my interest. And... and from like 2008 till 2012, that was kind of my education thing. And now I feel like I'm the whistleblower, right? <laughs> that is. I went from the educator good, good to point. the whistleblower. I, I think that's a, a good thing but to call But as far it. as like building the chart and doing what you do, and God bless you, Chuck, every day, <laughs> I would blow my head off. I can't. So as far as everybody's saying, Bob Forrest is a great drug counselor, no, I'm not. I'm horrible yeah. at it. Every once in a while, I think, you know what? Hey, what could I do in operations? Because it is just, it gets it so taxing. Gets sometimes so it's just, emotional. sometimes it's so much too. You put the emotion on top of the, the physical labor and the amount of hours typing. And sometimes it gets overwhelming and then it backs off just enough to where I could, you know, you get your head above water and you catch a couple of breaths and go, I can do this. I well, can another do this. thing that wore on me is literally from 2000, from 99 to like 2007, it seemed to me like, like at least a third of the people got sober and changed their lives around. It was such an amazing thing to be right in the middle of, right? The alumni group at Los Encinas that, that I took over every Tuesday night, there was like, 17 sober people that got sober there and new ones coming and old ones coming back to visit. And it was just amazing to be around all hmm. this turnaround in people's lives. By 2010, that was gone. It was just the same old recidivism, very low success rates, just 
Get that, him in, that get him kills, out. That kills me if, when someone would leave and come back like two days later. It's like, I, I'm embarrassed to call you an addict. <laughs> you couldn't make it two days. You got no game. You got no hustle. You got nothing going on. You come back looking like you were like, you're not just living in a bush, but you become the bush. You know, these people well, are just here's thrashed. The, the, rehabs, the rehabs I went to primarily were Cry Help, Exodus. So Exodus was at Daniel Freeman Hospital in Marina Del Rey. It was not nice. Everybody romanticized it. It was a hospital psych unit. It had a ping pong table out on this patio where you could smoke that was right next to the parking lot. So when you went outside, you looked at a million cars in a hospital parking lot. Mm-hmm. There was no view of the ocean. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was a hospital unit, right? And then Cry Help, everybody who's around you know, my world knows what Cry Help is. It's a mm-hmm. building uh, in, on Vineland and Burbank Boulevard right next to Circus Liquor. <laughs> so outside my bedroom window every night would be this clown. Have you ever seen it? <laughs> no, it's I a, don't know It's it. a huge 30-foot clown of circus liquor it's been there since the 60s and it's this clown how do i not know saying come and have liquor Mm -hmm. right outside my window of my rehab (laughs) and on the other side was a mcdonald's and across the street is like a lumber yard it's not fucking fancy so so exodus i think I i went to the most probably eight times cry help i went three times um hazelden i went three times these were not pleasant places this is not like, oh, this is better than my motel room. No, my motel room was better than the rehab. Right. You understand? Right. Yeah. So, so somehow from the ninth, early 1990s when I was going to rehab all the time, the rehabs became better than the motels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No. Yes. The accommodations, the showers are better, the food's better, the, you know, everything is just way better. And rehab used to be like, okay, I'm going to go to rehab. Like, that's a drag, but I need it. I'm going to go, right? So that's why I would stay out using for like eight months because rehab was like going to a look at a parking lot in McDonald's for fucking three months. Wasn't going to a fancy retreat or going to Huntington Beach and go surfing and do yoga. It was like sitting groups with a bunch of other junkies in a hospital ward, right? So I, I do believe the niceness of rehab makes it a lot easier to go back to quickly. You know what I mean? Makes it a desired destination for sure. Yeah. And it... <laughs> I was living in my car and sleeping on people's couches and it still was better than going to cry help. Because <laughs> in cry help, you can have like five roommates. When I was in there... I, 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 there's like five single beds in one room. Oh, yeah. I was just going to... I was just going to say at at Rock Center there were the first room you went into it was like six beds. It was six beds so it was me and five other guys and we shared a bathroom and I stayed in that spot for like 30 days before you could move up to a four man room before you could get to like a three man room and after like 5 months I was in only two guys in our room. And I mean I So but think about it. So if you're using if if rehab is not that great of a place to go and it's not gourmet food and pizza and movies and yoga and all that, if it's a big decision like holy fuck, uh, okay, I'm broken enough that I'll go there no matter what. That's not happening now. 
people are just out of money and go because it's not, it's better than walking around with nothing, right? Rather than becoming a little more broken each time, you know, to want to sign up to go to Claire Foundation or to go to Betty Ford Center. Betty Ford Center was the worst one of all. They don't let you smoke there. What? Fucking crazy. What kind of rehab doesn't let you smoke? Betty Ford? <laughs> From what I heard. <laughs> I just heard it. <laughs> Not that I had cigarette money, but Jesus. And and so, so I just think that somehow addicts like myself or you or or dozens of my friends the fact that we would go to rehab for 30 days or 40 days or 50 days or 60 days then get out go to aa for 30 days or 40 days or 50 days so have about 60 90 maybe 100 days sober and then go use again and then the misery uh you know the using from starting when you got money and you got a girlfriend and a place to live <laughs> right. all like, that stuff you and built it, up and yeah. it slowly erodes <laughs> yeah. down and then <laughs> you still don't want to go to rehab because rehab's still a bummer to go to and you use for two more months wandering around living in a car or something and then you finally like fuck i should go to rehab that makes for a more willing prospect pretty yeah pretty badly mangled isn't that what they yeah so you know so i always advise parents like let them roll let him roll. Like what he, you know, he knows he knows what he's doing is dangerous. You telling him what he's doing is dangerous not going to help, right? Because they know you don't know. So. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> I am going to die, and so unless you give me my way, right? I am going to die because I'm putting myself in risky situations. If you just give me money for my dope, <laughs> I wouldn't have to do the things You're I do. You're catching on, buddy. Uh, so like, that comes too late. The, that's too my late. tips for parents. And I got little tips. They're just practical tips. So the kids, tip. the kids I'm talking about are 22, 24, 26 years old. What they do is they disappear. And the parents are frantic like, Bob, he's disappeared. She's disappeared. Nobody knows where she is. She could be dead. She could be blah, 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 blah. And I say, well, I'm sure we'll hear if they die. I'm sure that we'll hear. You cold-hearted son of a bitch. But, but I'm sure we will. And we haven't, so I'm assuming they're alive. Because mm-hmm. literally, when somebody dies of drugs, they get found within four to six hours. So pretty much if, they're, if, if she or he died, we would know about it. So let's just be logical and reasonable. They're alive. They're just not in contact with you or me. Right? Let's, right. let's be optimistic here. They're alive. They're just not talking to you or I. Why would they not be talking to you or I? Because you and I, the mother or father and I, are going to say, what you're doing is crazy. You need, to, you need to get into treatment. You need to get sober. You need to, you know, whatever, that, that type of thing. So they're avoiding the good conversation and avoiding the people who care about them but eventually, if they don't die, and trust me, even though a lot of people are dying, 95% of them don't die, they are alive, and when they think it's time to get some free cigarettes and get their cell phone that they got stolen or lost or whatever, or they the car it. that they this person <laughs> took their car and they don't know where it is or whatever the story is, mm-hmm. they, call, they phone home like E.T., right bet 
I always say, so the first time, if they haven't talked to you in a week or two, and the first time you see their phone number, click up on your phone, don't answer it. Don't answer. Because that throws them off. They know, and they've known, and they've every time they've done it, you've like, oh my God, where are you? Are you okay? Right? As soon as you see their phone number, as soon as you see their name, as soon as you see their picture that you loaded in your iPhone, <laughs> right? They know that you're going to answer. And when you don't, they're like, what the fuck? And so they'll call back immediately right away. Then I have this other tip that I've told dads, like when I have a real rapport with a dad, I was like, if he calls, don't answer it. Just let it ring and go to voicemail. Don't listen to the voicemail. If they call immediately back, push it to, to don't answer so that they know you're purposely not answering. Because kids know phones better than moms yeah, and dads. And they know you just push I that I know it's, your phone is supposed to ring like five or six times and then it goes to voicemail. If it rings only one time and goes to voicemail, that means you push the red button. Fuck you. <laughs> and that, that really throws them back on their heels. They're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? My sponsor's phone does that when I call. What? He does it? He pushes it, <laughs> he in, pushes it on me. Pushes it I'm going gonna, gonna to have to hit him up because I thought that meant it might be off. But you know what? <laughs> no. That son of a bitch. <laughs> he pushes the red button. <laughs> he buttons me. Oh, that hurts. It really does Damn hurt. It. I don't mind a sorry I can't talk right now. That, that makes me feel better. <sighs> when a friend of mine, when I'm calling a good friend and... And they just push the red button and it he's goes probably right to in voicemail. a meeting and and the, it rings and he's embarrassed by the ring so he pushes the red button that's what it is that's what it is. that's what it is he's in a meeting that's what jack does to you well i'm right. assuming he's in a okay. meeting okay no but i'm i'm gonna say i uh, just if you like me if you care about me push sorry can't talk right now <laughs> don't just push the red button <laughs> it's too emotionally devastating <laughs> so that's what i like to do to drug addicts who right. are on a run, who are holding their parents emotionally hostage. It's I a like game changer. It. It's, a, it's like a, they know, you. oh my God, what the fuck? Then they're going to call back. You know, this is the hardest part. From when I get the parent to not answer the phone till when the kid calls back. If the kid's smart, they don't call back for a day. That means mom and dad are never going to listen to Bob ever again. <laughs> Because that night is so hard. Like, what if they die now? And the last time they called, I hang up the phone. I didn't answer because Bob told me not to answer. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Right? So I've lost a lot of clients that way, the parents that way. If the kid is smart enough to go, you know what? Fuck you. And not call for a but day. But they're not because when they call they're home, not. they're out of they options. They call all day. They're That's out of options. That's what most of them do now. And this is this phone tag thing that parents, I, I go into it because it's really important. Kids communicate via text and phones. They don't communicate interpersonally with you in a room, right? So what most of them do is call back an hour later indignant. Yeah. Like, so answer that, answer that, that second call or that third call and say, hey, so what are you doing? Did you, did you know that I just called? Did you hear my voice message? I was like, no, I haven't checked it yet. And no, what? What's up? How are you doing? You doing all right? Just act like <laughs> nothing's wrong. That Don't preach. The plan. That fucks with them mm. so bad. They're like, "What do you mean? I'm fucking got my car stolen." Fucking, oh my god, Jesus! Wow, bad decisions. Wow, bummer. Wow, sucks oh, to be you. God, <laughs> that's, that's, that's such a nightmare. 
So me and your mom went to Palm Springs last weekend. It was so fun. Wish you could have been come with us. But oh, I forgot you're on heroin and wandering around the city doing nothing with your life. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Just change the dynamic. You still love your kid. Just change the dynamic. That's the hard thing is that what, what they don't understand is that I just had to do this with my uh, middle kid. Uh, Halloween. Oh my God, he's back on drugs again. He showed up, he showed up at my house. And boy, I really uh, fucked up. I was a horrible drug counselor, wasn't I? It's pretty much Bob's fault. <laughs> but I was, I was his kid's drug counselor you know, for six when, months. When, oh my uh, god, I told you I was a bad uh, drug counselor. Well, you know, it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, hey man, if this is the way you're choosing to live, that's that's okay. I love you, you but I just can't have you around the house. You know, you need to be clean if you're going to show up here. You need to be not high when you're here. That's the only thing I ask, you know, and that you call before you come. Well, he shows up on Halloween and, you know, all the neighbors are out and we're having this, you know, we're, we're all hanging out. And I saw your little well, one dressed as the old man. Yeah. That was so great. <laughs> He's ridiculous. And that was his choice. His, he, he went, him and his mom went to the Salvation Army and picked out old man clothes. And his, <laughs> that was awesome. her dad made him a PVC Where did he walker. get it from? Because I, I was saying it looks like the Simpsons. It looks like the old guy on the Simpsons. He's just got a thing with old people. <laughs> He does. He's like she's got like an Uncle Phil who's old, and he he walks like that, and, and he, he really to he just it. digs old people. So what you at home got to do, and you should post it on on, <laughs> on the, the Don't Die Facebook page or something. Chuck's son dresses an old man with a walker, and he's like eight years old. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's seven, and he was happy, and he dug it, and he wanted to wear glasses and suspenders. So your so your twenty year old son comes by. Hi, he shows up, and I go, hey. It's good to see you, but you didn't call. I don't expect to see you unless I get a call first. And, oh, and, nah, he was pissed at and that. And he goes, it's Halloween. And I said, I, I don't care. I love you, but please, th this is the way, this is the way we've set it up. You know, and it, I, it sucks to have to be that guy when it would be really nice to say, you know what? You look good. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're doing okay. You know, if you know, if you need any, uh, if you if you want to talk later on, I'll be around. Give me a call. But instead, I had to go into this bullshit of it's for him. No one will see that. He won't see that. It's for him to say, I can't have you in my neighborhood. I can't just have you showing up when I don't know what your behavior will be. Because it's not him that's bad. It's him on, on, on drugs, drugs that's yeah. bad. It, it changes who people are, and it changes his person. So until he's the person that I know again, I can I, I can hear the pain in your voice. It's so fucking hard. So that's another thing that the parents at home need to know. Me and Chuck are going through this. I'm up right now. Elijah, my thirty year old, is um, is sober for a long time now, and the longest he's ever been sober, and and he finally seems to get it and understand it. But um, and that you know you're riding high in April. You know what I mean? Me. The yeah. holidays are coming. But and I try not to meddle. I don't even ask questions. He he likes to volunteer stuff now. And that's where, the way it should be. That's I, the way we do it with know, clients, I'm right? I'm just so proud of him and I know how hard it is to get that first year sober and you know, but but so we're up, we're down, we're you know what I mean, we're everything in between. So we're not proselytizing something we don't practice in our own families that we don't recognize as good ideas of how to deal with these young people and, and the drug epidemic and hopefully information education camaraderie community joking around sharing from our hearts about this shit will help 
help help reduce this what's going on, which is this death rate and this uh, uh, deplorable industry that we both work in and we and we love so much. <laughs> I do love it. I Don't love Aloe. Yeah. I love Aloe. I love Cry Help. I love Warren. I'm assuming that you where you work is great. I love I love, you know, I love a lot of rehabs. Yeah, I've had offers to re- leave recently and it was it was not that difficult to say no. Yeah. So, I mean, I I I know there's a lot of good players out there and of course all the gr- the granddaddies of them all, Hazelden, Betty Ford, though they're a little bit too suboxone for me. I know that you were, uh, you know, they're just too a little too suboxone for me, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> so, but but in general, if you're going there to get sober, you're going to get sober, and you're going to get it well educated, and you're going to get the the truth, and the, and you know, the truth is the truth with a small t. The truth is just day to day. We're all just trying to do the best we can. You know, and we're trying to live in love and tolerance, and we're trying to help. And the truth is, small t, drug addicts don't don't really take to sobriety that like fish to water. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish you dropped them off at the door and everything was uh, rainbows and unicorns after that. But it's just not. And unfortunately, that's just the first step. Well, I, I, I did a lecture in Chicago <clears throat> one time a couple of years ago. And they asked me if you could say one thing about addiction for people that don't know about addiction. What is the one thing that people need to know? And I said, you don't really need to know anything, but you should be patient, right? Uh-huh. See, the whole thing is based on patience and faith, right? You know, just have a little faith. In in my opinion most people with drug and alcohol problems are going to find a solution it's just a matter of when and that when could be 25 years from today right it could be today and it could be today all right talk to you later guys see you see you next time bye-bye Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.